the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, transcripts, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Sean Prophet. I'm Christoph Defoe. Today, we're going to bring you a kind of conspirituality episode with a hat tip to our friends over at the Conspirituality Podcast. It's a very special episode for me that marks the first appearance of my sister, Dr. Erin Prophet, on the Radical Secular. We're very happy to have her here today, and I hope it's not the last time she comes on our show. We also have with us today Joe Zimhart, our returning guest who joined us last year for episode 16, which was called Before Q There Was Cut. Aaron and Joe are here today to provide additional background about the philosophy and teachings of the Western esoteric tradition and how they relate to current controversies about race, as well as some of the specific ideas taught by organizations such as the Theosophical Society, Agni Yoga, the Mighty I Am Cult, and the Summit Lighthouse. But first, I want to remind you to make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. Before we get into any of that, though, I want to do a brief news segment because we haven't done one in a while, and we had quite a few bombshells this week. One of the the, the mm. main things that I want to talk about is that COVID cases and deaths are surging again. Uh, California just announced uh, that they're they're going back to a, ma- a mask mandate. Vaccina- vaccination rates nationally are lagging in many red states. For example, Tennessee has stopped any efforts to vaccinate its children. Um, We've seen the national seven-day average of COVID deaths starting to go up again. In Missouri, there are unconfirmed rumors that some people who want the vaccine are flocking to secret vaccine sites so their friends and neighbors won't know they've gotten their jabs. And of course, the shame and resistance surrounding the COVID vaccine ties in with what we're about to discuss in our guest segment, which is the linkage between the various so-called satanic conspiracies such as QAnon, health conspiracies, the right wing, and and just new age spiritual movements generally. So I just wonder if you could comment on that, Christoph. Yeah, you know, it's 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 wild, man. I mean, I just got back from this motorcycle trip, right? And uh, and I was out in Pennsylvania, in conservative area of Pennsylvania, around state college. So you have some areas, certainly some college towns there that are very progressive, but you go like 15 seconds outside of those towns and things go really crazy, really quickly. And, you know, I would, I would still wear my mask when I went into the, into the convenience store, when I went to the gas station, I'm still using hand sanitizer. I, uh, you know, I think that it's, first of all, I mean, maybe I'm carrying the Delta variant, maybe I'm not, but you know, and if nothing else, it's just to respect the people that have to work there, right? And they're all wearing masks because their company is forcing them to wear masks, I assume. And uh, it's just wild to be out there in the country and see. Um, I didn't get any nasty looks or anything like that, um, which I was surprised about. I did see one guy with uh, with a handgun, um, which always weirds me out because I'm not from a place where people walk around with handguns. Um, but But these cultural markers are so dangerous, Sean, because then it becomes this thing where people are have to hide, hide out to go get vaccines. Like that is so yeah. dangerous. I heard somebody say recently, it's like, oh, you know, if, if it's really about freedom, 
and freedom to wear your mask or not wear a mask, get a vaccine or not get a mask vaccine, go into a rural Texas bar with a mask on and mm-hmm. see if you have the freedom to wear your mask in there. See how fast your freedom fades away. So it's not about freedom at all, as we know. It's about these sort of cultural markers. And it's so fucking dangerous that the right wing has begun, has has weaponized this stuff, weaponized public health for their own, you know, just for as power, as a power grab, essentially. Well, they want conformity. I mean, it's let's just be clear. They talk about free speech. They don't want free speech. They don't want us no. to talk about critical race theory. It's like it just goes on and on every Back to what we when we started this whole thing, you know, over a year ago now, uh, talking about the bottomless pit of bad faith. It, exactly. it really is. There's no other way. They they are lying to themselves. They're lying to others. And and honestly, it just it things are changing. This is what this is what we have to really understand is that this is all reactionary to change. That 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 mm-hmm. phrase reactionary. I mean, it's 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 kind of associated with Marxism, but it really couldn't be more accurate as to what's going on here because we're in an era of accelerating change and and people are just they don't they want things to go back to the way they were and they never will and right so can't unring the bell you can't unring the bell and and speaking of which we can't seem to get a break from bad climate news oh my god last weekend death valley set a temperature record of 130 degrees uh supposedly there was a higher record in 1913 but i mean what you know what kind of accuracy did they have in their thermometers back then (laughs) so 130 is pretty much the record and and uh, last week at the same time 58 people died in germany from record Mm. flooding with an estimated 1300 people missing and when you hear people missing in a flood that probably means they're dead Yep. Just, just like in that building collapse i mean they they weren't missing they just it was just they just have to say that and Mm -hmm. Arizona was also hit by flash floods. You saw, you know, cars floating down the road in Arizona. And uh, this past weekend, another severe heat dome parked itself over Canada, producing triple digit temperatures across Canada and in the U.S. border states. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was looking at this map in the epicenter of that's right in Montana. I'm just kidding. Those people at the ranch are got to be cooking right now. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Oh, my Lord. But, uh, you know, so in Nevada, where I live, we're getting a bit of a break. I mean, it was like, you know, it's like only like 100 right now, you know. <laughs> um, but we sure could have used some of that rain from Germany, uh, you know, here. <laughs> but I don't even know how to like it's man. Like, I mean, I'm listening to you talk about these temperatures and I you know, we know that climate change is happening. We see it. We see the models. We've known this for years. Um but it's, I don't know, it's jarring to actually feel it happening in real time. Like I like to actually see it, right? Mm-hmm. Because 10 years ago, we'd be talking about climate change, but we didn't feel climate change like this, right? Like even here, the thunderstorms in New Jersey and in New Jersey, we like to think, we think on the only sort of weather events we have or what we call nor'easters, right? Mm-hmm. Which can be huge snowstorms or huge thunderstorms, depending on what time of year it is. But those have become unbelievably powerful, right? The thunderstorms that we get now, it floods here all the time. Like, you know, like Hoboken down there floods all the time. It it floods up here. There's flat and and there's, there's rivers, people driving through rivers in their cars. I'm like, holy shit, it's happening. And, but, and what's even crazier, (laughs) what's even crazier is that even as it's happening, there's people denying the evidence in front of their eyes saying, nope, it's not happening. Nope. It's not happening. We don't have to do anything about it. There's nothing we can do about this. It's, it's really scary. 
Oh, it's very, very scary. And what scientists predicted, and this is what a lot of people mocked scientists about, I mean, mm -hmm. because scientists said there's going to be more droughts and floods and conservatives right. were like, <laughs> which How is could it? that possibly yeah, be true? You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. As, but, but this is all happening right on schedule. I mean, it's as, as Joe and I talked about last week, I mean, yep. this is, this is the, the computer models that were done in the seventies and eighties, even with the, 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 you know, very, very uh, low rent computers they had back then were actually very accurate, yep. you know? So, um, and, and, and it's creating, as we talked about last week as well, uh, the political instability yes. that this is creating, uh, it, we, we, we have to acknowledge that it's related. There may not be a direct linkage. You can't necessarily say, well, this weather event was linked to this riot or whatever, but mm -hmm. there, there have been very serious riots and looting in South Africa. Uh, and it's something that this really hasn't even hardly been reported but former South African president, Jacob Zuma, he began serving a 15 month jail sentence last week on corruption charges and contempt of court. And his supporters are like Trump supporters or something. They, they, they embarked on this just savage wave of, of looting and rioting in several cities, leading to at least 117 deaths. 2,200 people have been arrested and the South African government has deployed more than 25,000 troops to quell the violence. It's the most troops that they've deployed since like the end of apartheid. Right. Wow. And I just, you know, I it's almost unimaginable to see the level of looting that went on because we think of South Africa as being a very civilized place. Yes. Yes. It's it's scary. My dad lives in South Africa, incidentally. Um, and uh, it is it's really scary to think about this. And and in general, I think the point that you're making is a good one. And I know you and Joe talked about this and I'll just touch on it briefly. And that is this problem that is people don't can't see it seems more than a couple steps down the road it's like it's not just that um climate change like the climate's going to change it means it's going to change dramatically so that people are it's going to cause instability political instability causes refugees refugees leave their homes and they go where do they go they go to where there's opportunity that means they go to they go to mainland mainland europe that means they go to um that means they go to the United States from from, you know, they go to Canada. This is where they go. And so and then that creates instability in our country because we know what happens when floods refugees come. Then the right wing is going to use that to, to to pry human beings apart. And by the way, by the way, I mean, we got to ask ourselves the questions. Do we want or am I willing to house a refugee in my house? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to help settle a refugee from Ecuador in my house like Am I? These are the kind of questions we need to ask ourselves. And that is the world we're looking at as people flee these yeah. environments where there is just nothing left for them. No, that's true. And I mean, I think that it is important to ask oneself that kind of question. Like if push came to shove, would I take someone in rather than let them die? And right. I, that's a tough thing for a lot of people. And I think that if we if we face that issue in ourselves, like we probably won't have to take them into our house because we can take some steps politically sure. to provide housing, to build new housing, to to help settle these people. But as long as we're dealing with the Fox News, you know, white supremacist attitude toward refugees, which is just fuck them, let them die. Exactly. And, you know, then we're and then and then they use that idea like, what do you want them in your house as a as yes. a club as a club to beat you over the head? Like, if you're not taking one in your house, then you're a hypocrite. It's like, no. As a country, we need national policy for this. 
That's a, that's, that's a, that's a really, really great point, Sean. You know, this reminds me of the Star Trek of the Star Trek Picard when they're trying to resettle all the people because of the, the Romulan, like the raw, the Romulan supernova. Right. Mm-hmm. And what Starfleet does when John, John Luke Picard's running it before the, uh, before the incident is they basically just find new worlds and build civilizations for these people, right? Build infrastructure for these people. There is plenty of unused land right in right there is a lot of land all say over the you place. Know, all over the place right it's like we could we if we if we could get our act together we could just create first of first of all temporary structures and then eventually full-on structures but then again the, the political will has to be there and we know oh boy the right wing is never gonna it won't let that happen and, and that's the fight that we're up against here Absolutely. And just just a brief side note about this is that liberals Mm. aren't innocent on this front, because when you look at what happens in a city, there are all kinds of places. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the San Fernando Valley, Santa Monica, all these these liberal places that vote two thirds Democratic in California. And whenever there is a proposal to put in a homeless uh, facility to house the homeless of, you know, tiny homes or tents or whatever the hell it is. Mm-hmm. Liberals go nuts. They go Absolutely. to city council meetings and they go to the, you know, they go to these public comment, uh, uh, events and they, and they act like Trump supporters. And so exactly we have to confront in ourselves as, as, as post liberals understand yes. that it is not enough for us to just pay lip service to these things. That's right. That's a, that's a great point. Great point. And, and so I want to transition on this also to another kind of, a, of of an example of the kind of liberal naivete that I've been seeing about the subject of the space billionaires. Mm-hmm. And there's been this, this incredible, it's my entire feed is filled with these memes about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and why they're not feeding the world's poor and why they're not building housing for people when they're going to space. And it's like... Liberals, you fucking chuckle fucks. <laughs> All I can tell you is just like, come on. What? I mean, how? Like, we all talk about systems, right? Do you expect these guys to just write a check when they're not right. being required to do so? You expect, how do you think a billionaire keeps their money? Why do you think <laughs> you're not a billionaire? Because you have compassion, right? You have compassion <laughs> and you would help people, but you can't, you have to understand that if there's a billionaire, they got that way by hoarding their money, by figuring Mm. out smart ways to take advantage of loopholes and by backing politicians like Trump who would cut their taxes. And, you know, the the funny thing is, is that Democratic billionaires kind of get a free ride there because they can, you know, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and he's obviously not for tax cuts for the wealthy, but he takes advantage of them, right? Right. We've got this weird thing going on here where we have we have not succeeded in holding our wealthy accountable. We have not succeeded in challenging inequality. We have this 1%. And then we're going to suddenly, when they when they build rockets, that's the time when we want to suddenly get upset <laughs> and going, why aren't you feeding the poor? I mean, so anyway, I just want to just mention, I, I, I personally think that these, these flights are kind of a waste. They're kind of frivolous, right? Mm-hmm. Sir Richard Branson, he got in his custom-built rocket plane this past week the VSS Unity, rode it to the edge of space on this parabolic suborbital flight. But again, this furious outcry. And I wrote an article about it because I just wanted to explain why this bothers me so much. Because it's a lack of understanding of human nature. It's a lack of understanding of game theory, lack of understanding of what uh, of systems. Mm-hmm. Once again, it all comes back to systems. But 
I think you know. that's right. I think that's right, Sean. And I, um, I, and I, I, I see your point. I understand why people are outraged, but I also think that it overlooks the fact it overlooks systems and it overlooks incentives. Human beings respond directly to incentives. Like if the, the, the billionaire, the, the way that our, the systems are structured right now, our economic system, our, our social system is structured right now, they have every incentive to do exactly what they're doing. It's the same thing with corporations. People are like, why do, why do they do stock buybacks? Why do these evil corporate? Well, they do that because they are rational actors. And so they're just behaving rationally under the system circumstances. If you want people, people will be like, especially a corporation or a billionaire who is essentially a corporation, right? Once you yeah. have that much, that much, what you're almost, almost, almost a, a, an economy onto yourself at that point, right? Yeah, you're so almost you, level you're actor. almost a state, you're almost a state actor as a billionaire, right? So my point is at that level, individuals and organizations operate very, very rationally. Very, they wouldn't be where they were, are. They wouldn't hoard the wealth they had if they couldn't operate rationally. And so they're operating under this. So what we, if we want to change that behavior, what we need to do is change the system. There's no other way. And that is why that's why there's such kicking and screaming and gnashing of teeth about, about when we try to change the system, about like, right, about uh, once we try to do things like reverse the outcome of Citizens United, like we try to um, enshrine voting rights. These are the things that will help change that system. And that's why the fighting is so is so uh, is so intense on, on that level. So I think what if those of us who are infuriated when we see billionaires doing this sort of thing, and if you are, then get out, then what we have to do is focus that 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 rage at the folks that are really keeping this system going, because look, Elon Musk, if he was created, if the incentive were right, he would do something different. He would, if we're different. He would do something different. And I think that's important to important to note. Yeah. And I think we have to differentiate also between Elon Musk, who is really more of a partner with NASA than, than for example, mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos and, and Richard Branson, who, I mean, Bezos has tried, he's tried to get some partnerships going with with other rocket companies and things like that but so far i mean he's he's way far behind and his and both these guys both branson and bezos right now are doing kind of joyride flights whereas elon musk is flying right. the space station right you know and so it, it is yeah it big is, difference big difference it, it's a big difference and um i don't want to keep harping on this again uh, it, you know too much more about about liberals but this idea that an individual by changing their behavior can change the system uh, is is just mm -hmm. so wrong, and it's such a distraction from what we need to do. These events, the 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 existence of these space billionaires, was the die was cast for that in 1982 when Reagan cut the taxes of the wealthy. That the, all right. of the wealth that has that has that has built up since then, and all of the wealth concentration that has happened is is is, a, is you know that's the one event that started that in motion, and then of course Trump cut you know, the taxes of billionaires down below the taxes of the middle class with that, with that, right. that his, his one major bill that he signed, you know, during his presidency yeah. was that tax cut. And so uh, I think that this is just really misplaced. I'm not sticking up for these guys. What I'm saying is that if you want to fix this, you have to blame the right people. Right. It's like getting mad at somebody who puts their, uh, their can in the wrong, their, their, in the, their can or their bottle in the wrong, wrong, uh, container and being like, oh my God, you're going to like, that's not, that's not the climate change problem. Right. I'm not saying right. you shouldn't put your can in the right place, but like, that's not, that's not the, that's not the issue. <laughs> you should. And I would like to see these billionaires make big, you know, start making some big donations, but, but right. as long as it's voluntary, that's not the point. 
right? But the right. system exactly. has to, to require this to, to yes. happen. Yes. And okay. Well, speaking of which, the, the next subject here is is talking about something that is just this is this is really scary, and it's about the the Trump administration and the coup attempt. Mm-hmm. And this is this book that came out. You know, I alone can fix it. You know, <laughs> that's a pretty good Trump that you did. Right? That's pretty good. <laughs> Thank that's you. Pretty good. <laughs> that's the title of the book. I alone can fix it, and it's it's from Washington Post reporters Carol Leonig and Philip Philip Rucker. They they, they kind of put out some chilling details in an, in an excerpt of this book uh, with their conversation with chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, in regard to the, the coup attempt and the tense period between the January 6th insurrection and Joe Biden's inauguration. We, we knew stuff was happening behind the scenes then. We, mm-hmm. we knew it. I mean, but apparently Milley and the other top brass had put a plan into motion. They were going to resign in succession to prevent outgoing President Trump from ordering the military to intervene and prevent the peaceful transfer of power. And he had some choice words. He called Trump supporters Nazis. He said they were the ones who we were, he said they're the same people we were fighting in World War II. Uh, he compared the coup attempt to the Reichstag fire. And this kind of lets you know that how serious this threat was that our highest mm. military officials said, you know, he said they might try, but they're not going to fucking succeed. I, you know, when you have a, a, a person at the highest level of our government, you know, ha- taking that kind of stand, it's, it's, it really just lets us know that this was closer to disaster than we thought. And, and of course uh, I'll do, I'll do my, more of my Trump impression here. He put out this dopey <laughs> statement saying, I never threatened or spoke about to anyone a coup of our government. So ridiculous. Sorry to inform you, but an election is my form of coup. And if I was going to do a coup, one of the last people I would want to do it with is General Mark Milley. I mean, (laughs) it's just so childish. Again, I think think your uh, impression is is pretty spot on. Uh, And and, uh, it's, it's so chilling on so many levels, first of all, that this man was president of the United States and that people still want him to be president of the United States um, to some extent. And that he and but, you know, you know what he just said is bullshit. You know, absolutely. If he could have gotten the military involved, he would have. If I, you know, I'm sure there are people who counsel them against it because it would be completely crazy. But it's really chilling that you have this top these top brass who are very, very committed to the idea of the United States, the ideals anyway of the United States and to their jobs who were really thinking like that this was a contingency plan that they had. That is really fucking scary. And what's even scarier is that the Republican are right now trying to downplay this, right? Oh, yeah. Just trying to pretend like, what are you talking about? Not a big deal. No coup here. That's scary. It's really scary. And we know of this, that they, they don't care. They're, they're not, they don't only, they don't care about democracy. They are, they are uh, dismissive of democracy, right? They disdain democracy. We know this, this is, um, but it's, but it's really scary to hear it, to hear it talked about by somebody who was there. Well, and the only reason they would downplay it is because they were backing it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Otherwise, no, no Republican. I mean, when I was growing up would have ever, you know, tried to deny that kind of threat. If that sort of thing had happened, you know, when we when we were growing up, I mean, it would have been a a scandal. There would have been hearings for for days. Oh, my God. Absolutely. You know, for years. Um, and, And we also got confirmation this week in this bombshell article in The Guardian that the KGB had cultivated Donald Trump as an intelligence asset since the 1980s. There is a Kremlin document that leaked of Putin ordering the 2016 election interference. Not shocking or surprising in any way, but still to actually see this document 
it's it's definitely this is a milestone in American history. This is no longer a conspiracy theory. Uh, Putin called Trump mentally unstable and he sought to increase social turmoil in the United States. This is in writing. And the report also confirms that Russians have compromising material on Trump, so-called compromat, which we all know is referring to the legendary <laughs> P-tape or whatever, <laughs> some blackmail material that they got on him when he went over there to investigate building a, 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 you know, a Trump Tower in Moscow. So right. we, we know this happened now. It's not a matter of conjecture. And you know this in helped ensure Trump's kind of passive approach to Russian foreign policy. I'd say that, you know, Putin pretty much got what he wanted gift wrapped. You know. Oh, my God. Putin is the biggest winner on this entire fucking planet. He really, really is. He's like he's he's arguably the richest guy on the planet. He probably is the richest guy on the planet. And he managed to crack the United States code. I mean, like he is. I mean, the the, the misinformation, the divisiveness, the use of he's. He's disrupting the superpower without mm -hmm. firing a shot. It, it, yeah. It's 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 remarkable. It is remarkable. And he's just playing on the trends that are already happening here very, very uh, smartly, like a like a KG, KGB agent like would. KG, yep. Exactly like a KGB agent would, like a fucking spy. He is doing exactly that. Sabotage. Well, there was a real confluence also between Russian interests and this confrontation and rec reckoning that we're having now over race. Mm -hmm. I mean, he like, again, there are a lot of people in our country who don't see what's going on. But this foreigner, right, mm -hmm. smart guy, he yep. got the entire picture. He, he's just playing us like a fucking violin. He really, really is. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that about wraps up our news segment. And I want to introduce our guests now. So Erin Prophet is a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Religion at the University of Florida. She specializes in religion and medicine. She has a PhD in religion with a specialization in Western esoteric traditions from Rice University in Houston, Texas. She has a master's degree in public health with an epidemiology concentration from Boston University. Among her publications are Charisma and Authority in New Religious Movements in the Oxford Handbook of New Religious Movements, Volume 2, 2016, and Prophet's Daughter, My Life with Elizabeth Clare Prophet Inside Church Universal and Triumphant from 2009. She is a co-author with Jeffrey Kripal of Comparing Religions in 2014. She's also my sister, as I mentioned proudly at the top of the show. For those of you who may not know, the Summit Lighthouse, also known as Church Universal and Triumphant, is the cult that Christoph and I grew up in, along with Aaron. Aaron and I were both ministers in the group and served on the organization's board of directors for several years. Aaron was also in training to be a messenger in the church. Currently headquartered in the Paradise Valley of Montana, the organization was founded in 1958 by our parents, Mark and Elizabeth Prophet. And we also have Joe Zimhart. He is an artist, occult information specialist, and a mental health professional who currently works for a psychiatric emergency hospital in Pennsylvania. He made his living as a cult interventionist from 1985 through 1998 after exploring and rejecting groups and teachings derivative of theosophy and new thought, including Agni Yoga, the Mighty IM, and the Summit Lighthouse, also known as Church Universal and Triumphant. Last year, he published Santa Fe, Bill, Tate, and Me, How an Artist Became a Cult Intervention Specialist. He is sought often by the media for his opinions and expertise about cult phenomena. Aaron and Joe are both here to talk to us about cults, the question of mind control and undue influence, conspiracies and occult spirituality, and their ideological connection to authoritarian movements. 
Our emphasis today will be on the Summit Lighthouse and we will also discuss some of the conspiracy theories that circulated in the organization and continue to influence broader American politics today. So without further delay, The Radical Secular presents Aaron Prophet and Joe Zimhart. Welcome to the show, Aaron and Joe. How are you both doing today? Doing great, thanks. Yeah, fine. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you. And uh, how are you doing, Christoph? I am good. Glad to be here. Welcome, uh, guests. All right. Well, the first thing we should do is uh, talk about our T-shirts, because that's usually a good icebreaker. Um, Aaron, what are you wearing today? So my T-shirt is, um, see, it's got a little heart on it, and it's called Rice Medical Humanities. And I noticed that the color on it is similar to my green screen, so it, it kind of washed out there. But um, so... Uh, it represents my study of this new discipline that's called medical humanities, which encompasses the study of basically people's lived personal experience of illness and how their both uh, history, philosophy, religion, poetry, and art all inform the way people experience illness. So that's one of the things I teach at the University of Florida. And for me, it kind of represents my desire to understand um, people's own experiences as individuals and to not sort of look at them as stereotypes. Mm. That's a really interesting combination um, and, and cool shirt. Uh, how about you, Joe? Well, I dug something out that's a 30-year-old 30, 30 T-shirt that I purchased back in 1990, I think, and uh, I haven't worn it hardly ever, but here it is. And this was put out by the uh, branch or a division of the Cult Awareness Network back then. It's reading backwards to me. Can you read it properly there? I, yeah, it looks know. right. It looks right here. So. All right. So anyway, it was put out by a group called Free Minds. And obviously, it has this stereotypical view of cult, which I don't like. I've never did. Uh, so I, I thought I'd talk a little bit about that if I could, because I wore it whimsically. Um, uh, you know, th th this whole idea of cult, it, the word has changed over time. Uh, back in the 1610s, it meant uh, worship and homage. In the 1670s, a particular form of system of worship. Uh, in the 17th century, the French cult came into um, uh, use. And then uh, around 1873, um, someone said cult is a term which, as we value exactness, we can ill do without seeing how completely Religion has lost its original signification, and that was by uh, Fitzward Hall, Modern English, in 1873. And then we come to 1993, cult, an organized group of people, religious or not, with whom you disagree. And that was by Rawson in Wicked Words that he wrote <laughs> in 1993. So, you know, it's a loaded word. Um, so I, I just wanted to bring it up because part of my history and the history of this discussion, I think. Yeah, I think we'll get behind me is a, is a little uh, illustration of, a friend of mine did of me a caricaturist in Santa Fe, and he calls me cult buster and uh, put that little thing together uh, probably back in the 80, late 80s. Interesting. Well, we'll definitely get a lot more into that, the okay. uh, derivation, the desirability right. of that word as we as we go along here. But uh, let's finish up with the shirts. Uh, Christoph, what do you have? 
Sure. And uh, Joe, it's it's interesting that you brought up. So one of my my favorite band ever, and I talk about it a lot on the show, is is Bad Religion, and their their symbol is a crossbuster, right? So when I see that, I see like the cult buster, crossbuster. It's like it's like that like sort of clicks with me in my head. But uh, today I'm wearing my Obama shirt, um, and it just says change change happens. And that is from um, the 2008, uh, the original, when I was in law school um, in 2008, when during that time, and they were giving out these t-shirts. And I wore it today because, and it's really interesting, Aaron, that you mentioned you describing your shirt and what you do. Um, and one of the things that I talk a lot about is the importance of seeing people as people. They may be people that we disagree with. They may be people that we think do monstrous things even, but they're still human beings and they still think they're doing the right thing. They mm -hmm. still are wrapped up in, and they're, and they're individuals. They're not. And, and, and when we reduce them to caricatures, not only are we doing them, we are, we're, we're lying to ourselves, right? We're like, we're doing ourselves a disservice when we think about people in those terms, because not even if our goal is to beat them, mm -hmm. even if our goal is to beat them ideologically, we are doing ourselves a disservice when we, when we boil them down to a caricature. And, um, being on this last motorcycle trip that I was just on, really, it's when on these trips, I run into people I would never run into normally in my normal bubble, right? I meet people at these groups that are just people that I would probably disagree with on a lot of different things. Um, I run into a lot of people out in the country who literally scare me because they are ro rocking Confederate flag trucks and Trump flags, right? Um, and uh, And the reason why I bring all this up is because I think Obama his perspective on all of this, his his approach, the hope approach, right? The positive approach, the way that he always tries to find the better angels of people, right? And connect with people on that level. I think that that is, as my philosophy continues to evolve, as I continue to evolve, I see the wisdom, continuing wisdom of that approach. Um, and so um, as we try to understand today, cults, why people do what they do, how people get involved in cults, how we understand. And I think that is important to think about it from that perspective. So that's from my idea about my t-shirt today. I unearthed this one also. I hadn't worn this one in a very long time. Um, I don't wear it a lot, but uh, but I'm glad to be here. Thank you guys for being here. And uh, let's get into this. Absolutely. Well, let, let's talk about my shirt real quick. Mm -hmm. And this is an, this is an evolution shirt. And uh, the reason why it has at the end, it has the person throwing away religions. And I was inspired to wear this by an article that I read this week in Scientific American. It was talking about how uh, creationism was really, really tied up with white supremacy. Because mm. if you think about our evolution, okay, for the vast majority of, of human history, all humans were black. And uh, most of what we consider to be human culture was in fact invented by black teenagers because people didn't live as long. And so it was very, you know, it's very youthful culture and it's very black culture. And so when you deny evolution, you're really sort of, and you think about this, this very lily white garden of Eden, and you think about, you know, Adam and Eve, they're def definitely not black. And um, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's very much, it very much, I've, I've been getting into a sort of heightened, sharpened sense of how this conflict really is about race. And mm -hmm. um, I think that that's, we're going to get into that later today as we talk about it. And we talk about some of the, the history, the, the ideological history of, of, you know, the, what we call the Western esoteric tradition. Aaron, you'll correct me if I, if I'm not, if I'm not referring to that right, but um, let's get into it. 
Uh, I want to approach our topic today through the lens of conspiracy theories in the hopes that we can identify some of the similarities and differences with, res with respect to the beliefs that we were taught growing up in the Summit Lighthouse. And so I'm going to start out with uh, and by reading a quote from an article called, uh, What is the Most Damaging Conspiracy Theory in History? And it's in, of all places, the webzine Gizmodo. Uh, and so here's the quote. Not every conspiracy theory is de facto bad. Vast forces really are colluding against us with varying degrees of intent. It is when these forces are misidentified, when the blame is pinned on people equally helpless or people who are totally made up, that things can spin out of control. The events of January 6th are just one example. Five people died that day and many more might have. But this was, of course, not the first time conspiracy thinking has erupted in violent ways. From this country's inception, paranoid fever dreams have regularly led to startling acts of terror, subjugation, etc. But which specific conspiracy has caused the most destruction? What is history's most damaging conspiracy theory? For this week's Giz Asks, we reached out to a number of experts to find out. And uh, the article, that's the end quote. The article makes reference to Richard Hofstadter's 1963 essay called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And so I'm just going to list off now here the conspiracy theories that the experts they interviewed talk about. And we've also talked about some of these on the show before, particularly QAnon. But here we go. Freemason conspiracies, Illuminati conspiracies, anti-Semitic conspiracies such as the blood libel, QAnon, Trump's big lie about the 2020 election, the Iraq weapons of mass destruction theory, white supremacy, the JFK assassination, satanic ritual abuse, COVID vaccine conspiracies, vaccine conspiracies in general, uh, the Salem witch trials, the idea that immigrants collude and conspire with their host governments against the United States, the Red Scare and McCarthyism, the 9-11 truth movement and climate change conspiracies. All right, Joe and Aaron, two things. First of all, which of these conspiracy theories do you believe is the most dangerous and which do you want to talk about today in terms of the esoteric religions? Why don't each of you take on both those questions and we'll go from there. Joe, you want to go first? Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, the, what struck me here is what th these are all particulars of a, of a grander conspiracy that human beings have been dealing with since the dawn of, of, of human awareness, since we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, so to speak. Uh, when we began to form judgments about reality, about our, our sexuality, about the knowledge of, of, of self and, and the universe. And I call it the cosmic conspiracy. And I think it was uttered uh, fairly well by early Gnostics that deviated from what was later became mainline Christianity and uh, the, the Roman uh, version. But um, the idea is that this God uh, somehow spewed out this universe and, and is just either allowing it to go on on its own like a deist god might, or it's it's tinkering with it and creating very beautiful objects at the same time killing things off constantly. You know, so we're wondering why is that happening? And, and uh, I think the Gnostics wanted to escape from that. And they, they created a, a two version god, the Demiurge, the creator, which was evil, the, the, the early uh, uh, Semitic god. And then the pleroma of the aeons, the, the, the wonderful light beings that, that should have never been manifested in matter. You know, in other words, we have that divine spark within us that's supposed to go back under Gnostic uh, lore, back into the, uh, the light. 
Um, so I, I think that we are prone to conspiracies. We, we find them in all kinds of places, depending on our insecurities, our political bias, uh, our religious bias, our medical bias, you know, and we're caught in the cosmic conspiracy and the scientists are trying to figure it out. The religious people are trying to figure it out. You know, I'm trying to figure it out. You know, I'm failing all the time, but, but I keep at it. So that's how I see it anyway. Great. Aaron, how about you? Sure. So I'll just back up for a second because, um, you know, one of the reasons I'm on the show is because I believe that you and Christoph both are doing this show because you would like to find a better way forward, a better way forward from the problems of past religions, the problems of ideologies, and some of the problems that, as you know, I'm your sister, so I grew up, we grew up, we had to share the same upbringing. And um, so, you know, we both left our mother's church for different reasons and around the same time in the early 90s. And um, so I, um, as far as, so I just wanted to, establish that I think that we all sort of have a common goal and an aim. And um, when you ask about conspiracy theories, and I'll just touch a little bit on what Joe was talking about, about Gnosticism, in a sense, whatever age people live in, they're trying to figure out like sort of why is it the way it is and how can, how can we change it? And even for the Gnostics, they, um, you know, they were living around the time of Christ and they had come into contact with ideas from Egyptian religion. And many people, many Jews, as well as, you know, citizens of the Roman Empire, were trying to figure out sort of um, how could the God Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew Bible, be so angry and cruel? And that's that's where they came up with this idea that he was really this lower God, this demiurge who was angry, and that there was really this sort of higher God up there, out there in the in the Paroma, as Joe mentioned, and that this God sort of had a, a different plan, but that the solution was to get completely out of the universe, to transcend it in some way, which mm. could lead people to sort of very ascetic practices, world-denying practices, etc. And some of those can be problematic. So there's been a lot of different iterations of Gnosticism over time, and it certainly has contributed to various conspiracy theories. But if you wanted me to pick one conspiracy theory out of all those you mentioned that I think is, is important, to me, it's not even so much about the ideology as it is about when people decide that this is an actionable conspiracy theory, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, sort of a danger point. And it's interesting to me that... Um, this whole idea of satanic ritual abuse does kind of relate back even into our, our own church. And um, because our church got lumped in, right, with other groups that were supposedly satanic. But then our church coming as it did from within uh, various esoteric traditions also believed that in some sense there was there was satanic ritual abuse going on somewhere. So we were both sort of trying to identify it in other groups, as well as having members of our church be persecuted for their supposed Satanism or, and, and um, even child abuse. So I will just stress that I don't believe that anyone in our church or was ever sanctioned anywhere participated in any kind of child abuse or ritual abuse 
that uh, involves sexuality um, or blood drinking or anything like that. But there actually was a case, and it's, it's all documented in a film from 2008 that's narrated by Sean Penn called Witch Hunt, how a couple of members from our church were caught up in this satanic ritual abuse panic of the 90s mm. and ended up spending, or actually of the 80s, ended up spending almost a decade in jail and having their children taken away from them for absolutely no proof at all. Mm-hmm. And so I think to me that identifies the dangers in labeling, the dangers in allowing ourselves to go overboard in terms of trying to stamp out what we might see as cultism or, um, you know, any kind of illegitimate religion. And so that's why, you know, I'm a student of, I teach a class called Cults and New Religious Movements here at the University of Florida, and it's a popular class. And, um, (laughs) you know, I think that the students, when they come in, you know, they've seen a lot of portrayals in the media of the evil, deviant, shadowy cult and cult leader, but they also don't necessarily realize that behind many of these religious groups are people who are just in their own way trying to figure out the world. And I count my parents in that, and I know that you may not agree with that, but um, I count my parents and many of the people that that raised us as people who were in them, themselves trying to turn away from organized faith that they thought were defective and to try to create something new. And in that, they often turn to something like Western esotericism, which I'm happy to kind of circle back and talk about, you know, what it is and how it it came to be and what are some of the problematic areas of it. So I hope that answers your question about the conspiracy theories. I mean, when we see something like, you know, the January 6th insurrection and we see that type of violence um, directed towards, um, you know, members of our our government, we see how you know difficult and challenging that was. Obviously, we'd all like to get to the bottom of it and figure out how to stop it. And we know that QAnon, and I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more, was instrumental in stirring up and riling up many of the people who attacked the Capitol on that day. And obviously, it's something that I think should concern every American. Yeah. And one of the things that we heard just recently is that it could have been much worse. They, they, they confiscated enough ammunition from the various people who were attacking the Capitol to shoot everyone in Congress five times over, something like almost 3,000 rounds of ammunition, 2,500, something like that. But I wanted to go back to something else that you said that we were all, uh, the people who are in cults are all trying to just kind of figure out the world in their own way. Some of them have been a rejection of organized religion. Some of them have been deliberately trying not to do what cults end up doing. And I'm, I'm just I'm just curious if, you know, either one of you can take this, uh, Joe or Aaron. Um, why is it that it seems like that when people are trying to do better, that they end up just doing the same thing over and over again? Um, you want me to go ahead, Aaron, or you want to take that? You can go first if you want. I mean, I'll have something to say about it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I've been turning to WRB on a lot to kind of look at the behavior of groups. He did studies back in the 40s and, and 50s and wrote a little bit about it. And there's been some more interest in him. And, and he came up with something as he observed groups among uh, neurotic soldiers that he was trying to help um, in his psychoanalysis. Um, he called it the basic assumption group and or state that, that, that often groups fall into these basic assumption states because they feel more secure and, and it can be 
um, uh, fight or, or, or flight uh, basic assumption. You know, in other words, uh, we're in this group because we're protecting ourselves from the outsider. Um, it, it can be a, a number of other things. And he contrasted that with what he called the working group, which is a group that, that tries to see its own errors and, and looks to the outside for improvement within its own structure and continues to grow, uh, kind of like our, our government was set up here in the United States to, to continue to change and amend itself as time goes on. That's considered, and, and what happens with, with what we call cults or new religious movements that become very constricted, I think is they fall back into this basic assumption state and they stay there. And that, that assumption state is that somehow their leader is the agent of God, and then uh, they have to protect that uh, at all costs in order to protect their own identity in the group. Uh, and, and I think that's where the deviance and, and the harm comes in, is when people fall into these basic assumption states and stay there, and then all kinds of havoc can happen. I mean, QAnon was a basic assumption state. There was an assumption that there was a Q figure. There was an assumption that that the, the, the deep state is, is running the world. There was an assumption, you know, and, and people bought into that totally. And as a result, they were energized and, and then became weaponized by the, uh, the particular forces that wanted to use them for insurrection. So anyway, that's, that's basically uh, how I see it right now. Go ahead, Aaron. Sure. Well, I mean, there's a lot that you can look to in group dynamics to try to help explain why people you know, turn inward, become, you know, um, more attached to an insider outsider mentality. I mean, I think even in our own church and, you know, which was started by our, by Mark Prophet, Sean's my father in 1958. Um, he didn't intend to start a church. He wanted to start a sort of group that was going to circulate letters that was going to do meditations. It was actually sort of like the third or fourth time he tried to start an organization. And it was, it was successful because it had an influx of people who were disaffected moving in from another uh, group called the I Am Religious Activity that had been around since the 1930s. And so he absorbed these people who already had a certain worldview. And some of that worldview involves sort of how you should act or behave or, you know, that if you, you, um, needed to, for example, wear certain colors in order to attract positive energies. And they had absorbed a lot of ideas from new thought, which was, you know, kind of what you would think of as positive thinking movement that started actually way back in the 1880s and then um, had morphed into different things. So there were certain things that um, our parents and my mother came along in 1961, you know, that they had to kind of accept if they were going to teach in this setting, you know, and some of it, a lot of it had to do with, you know, the power of thought and the power of, of the mind. But I uh, just getting back to the whole question of sort of like, why do people, um, what, how do groups get into sort of a group think mentality? And I think some of that has to do with this inherent tension in esoteric belief systems between the idea that you're the ultimate arbiter of your destiny. Like a lot of, you know, this esoteric belief systems tell people that the truth is inside of you, right? But within the I am tradition and somewhat within theosophy, which we can get to, there's also this idea that there are masters or gurus who somehow know better than you or who, who can see the truth of your life better than you can. And so that's why I think there was a, quite a bit of 
diversity within our movement as far as how people applied these ideas. So the ones that uh, might have been the more dedicated who took the step of moving to the headquarters uh, and, you know, working full time for the group were often had quite different levels of um, opinion or agency than people who were just reading the books or doing the chanting, you know, and, and things like that. So I did it, again, I think it's important to look at individual cases, but also to look at the movement as you know, as you're trying to do on this show. Yeah. Well, um, I'd like to ask you then to talk specifically about if there are links that you see theologically, ideologically, okay. Um, between QAnon and the new age generally, because, you know, as you know, we've, we've talked pretty extensively with Matthew Remsky at the conspirituality podcast, and there's a whole uh, synthesis that's really happening that they're doing over there where they're kind of linking the, the, you know, the way the new age and, and the right wing have kind of, have kind of gotten together. And, you know, there are so many similarities and this is stuff, Aaron, you and I heard this stuff when we were kids constantly, the, the, the blood drinking, the, the people with animal features, lizard people, mole people, UFOs, and all of these kind of things. I mean, that figured very, very prominently in, in our mother's, um, teaching and, and, you know, and, and, and ideology that the Nephilim, the, you know, the, the, the 12th planet stuff, the, you know, um, can you talk about that at all? Sure. And first of all, I like to re recommend a book by David Robertson. It's called UFOs, Conspiracy Theories in the New Age. And he kind of goes back into a little more of the backstory. I mean, Matthew Remsky didn't come up with the idea of conspirituality, but certainly in the 2000s, you start to see, and it, it's interesting because it used to be that New Age people were kind of left wing, you know, were kind of hippies and alternative medicine folks. And now you see that many of them have kind of switched over to the right wing. Um, so I'll just back up a little bit because you mentioned a bunch of things, like blood drinking and um, animals, people with animal features. And, you know, I just I just like to give an analogy, which is that Christianity. So this the new age is a pretty vast movement. There's millions of people in it. There's hundreds of different groups. Um, just as you would look at Christianity, which has ideas about angels and Satan, or if you were to look at nativity scenes across the world, you wouldn't assume that just because two people, two types of Christianity believe in Satan, or two of them put out the same nativity scene, that they necessarily had the same views. And that's something that I want to stress um, also when we talk about politics, is that these ideas aren't necessarily associated with one particular viewpoint. Now, as far as Q goes, QAnon was started by somebody who, you know, calls himself um, Citizen Q, I think his name, <laughs> yeah, um, on the 4chan chat. And it's really a political, and it's hard, it's political, but it's subtly trying to bring in all of these people who believe in conspiracy theories. So that's why it's not surprising to me that they're bringing in blood drinking, you know, supposedly Hillary Clinton and other top Democrats or people, elites are, you know, taking blood from children. So the idea that some shadowy group uses children's blood or some small cultish group has been used 
since Roman times against, it's been used often against small and popular movements like the Gnostics. Um, it's also been used against Jews and it's now being used against the supposed elite. So um, we know that there are, have been big conspiracy theories and a lot of them also include the Kennedy assassination, right? And um, the whole idea of lizard people actually comes through David Icke, who started this in the 1980s. But um, the whole idea that there could be hybrids of animals and humans uh, is something that you start to see developing in theosophy. And you know, maybe Joe will want to talk about this a little bit. But it's not just theosophy. If you look back at 19th century biology and science fiction, there were a lot of ideas around that period that somehow there were these hybrids maybe living in caves underground somewhere. And then, of course, when you had um, UFOs starting in the 1940s and 50s, all of a sudden these people could be from other planets. So you start to see this, you know, mutual and reciprocal informing of science fiction narratives and religious narratives. And, you know, people don't, religions have always taken up whatever was going on in popular culture and tried to use it to make sense of the world. And so I don't view my, my parents' church as necessarily being directly linked in any way with QAnon, but I think that the person who started QAnon, person or people, because it's been speculated that maybe there was more than one person, and obviously there are the people who interpret the Q drops and things like that, the so-called bakers who are the ones that, you know, started developing these narratives, that they were really trying to help Donald Trump win the 2020 election. Like that was right. the whole point of Q. And if they could, to the extent that they could rope in, because I think they knew that they couldn't just with the Christian evangelical right, who was already on his side, that they weren't going to, didn't have enough people. So they wanted to find ways to bring in the new age and conspiracy folks. And certainly um, the pandemic provided a whole raft of, you know, avenues for new conspiracy theories to develop. And then you have a real conspiracy, which is the Jeffrey Epstein case, which seems to involve, you know, not only Bill Clinton, but also Donald Trump somehow, you know. And so somehow this real conspiracy as a sex scandal. Right. Mm -hmm. And as, you know, people being trafficked, young women being trafficked, seems to lend credence to this other one that involves Hillary Clinton. And of course, we know that the Everything's connected, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 4chan, um, the whole idea of, of child abuse in the Democratic Party came out of the emails that had been released from the DNC, which talked about ordering pizza. And it just so happens that it's some kind of code for um, in, in child abuse circles of like ordering pizza. So the people on 4chan just thought it was a hilarious joke to start saying that the Democratic Party was out ordering, you know, they were a bunch of pedophiles. And I think that it kind of morphed from there. And of course, Q is very cognizant and aware of this whole milieu. And I think cynically right. exploited it is my view. Well, I wanted to say, um, before I turn it over to you, Joe, I want to just, just say long before David Icke talked about lizard people or whatever, I mean, in, in our in our upbringing, I mean, there was there was definitely talk about about mole people. There was talk about the hollow earth. There was talk about genetic engineering and the the you know the the crazy um, perversions sexually and and genetically that were that happened on Atlantis and and all of these. I mean, these legends just were and they were told to us as if we as if they were just true. And uh, and I think that 
there's there's a couple of things here. One is fear of technology, fear of, you know, sort of playing God when you get into modifying the body and brain, when you get into, uh, th there was this idea, uh, again, we were accused of being uh, a cult and of brainwashing people, but then there was this larger fear that we had of the brainwashing that was going on in the world or by Soviets or whatever the thing was. And so I just think this is, there's a there's a there's a bigger sort of picture that we just kind of tapped into, and I wondered if you want to comment on that, Joe. Well, yeah, I, I had a thought that you know, if you're going back to Blavatsky when she was a young woman, she was uh, uh, very fascinated with the writings of uh, Sir Edward Bulwer Lytton, who wrote um, the Last Days of Pompeii, but also uh, I think it was called the Lost World about the real society and underground culture, and, and they had this kind of energy called Brill. Um, so, you know, you're going back into the mid uh, uh, 19th century with this idea of a hidden world and and of, of an advanced culture. And it comes from Rosicrucian lore in a way which influenced the Freemasons as well as theosophy to a great extent. Um, you know, I don't want to get into particulars here, but 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 this kind of thinking goes way back. And, and so even among Rosicrucians, there was this sort of conspiracy that there was a hidden group of men somewhere that were guiding the nations. And out of that grew the Ascended Master Movement, which, you know, somehow through Blavatsky's ideas of, uh, of uh, her connections with Saint Germain and uh, Joao Kuhl and El Moria and Kudhumi and all of that. Um, the Old Man of the Hills was also one of her uh, favorites early in her life. Old uh, Man of the Hills. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, and that morphed into what later became channeling and a lot of other movements, including the IM movement. Um, I think the IM movement was in particular uh, right wing. Uh, it, it really uh, borrowed quite a bit uh, from a uh, number of movements, including theosophy. Uh, William Dudley Pelley's followers, for instance, were recruited into the early IM movement. Uh, one of Pelley's uh, uh, his, his treasure, I think, became a road manager for Guy Ballard. So there was a link in that white supremacy thing and the idea of the, the, the Nordic looking blue eyed blonde ascended master. You know, this was all part of the, the, the subculture in the what I, what's called the the culture uh, movement in those days. And, and so some of that fed into the QAnon lore. And it feeds into some of the, the base, so-called base of, of, of Trumpism among uh, evangelical uh, white Christians who see themselves in a millennial kind of a world. Uh, they want to see Israel um, uh, spared, but also believe that there's going to be a bloodbath in Israel, that it's become, going to become a victim of prophecy. Um, you know, they, they believe in that kind of thing wholeheartedly. So, in, in going in and destroying the government, there's almost this, this uh, echo that I remember when I was with Cut of, of uh, one of the dictations that, that your mother gave out that, you know, when the Christed ones, um, oh, uh, we, will, we will turn the government inside out and upside down. And when the dust settles, the Christed ones will come to rule the U.S. government. You know, this was something that, that I, I remember hearing within the teachings. Yeah, it was a decree. Yeah, it was a decree. Okay, so so the idea is is to impose through an authoritarian means your will upon a corrupt world. You know that that's the notion behind it is that that right makes uh, might right makes right, and uh, 
It's an instinct that, that human beings have, uh, you know, very lousy parents beat their children instead of trying to correct them with, with gentleness and, and, and reason. Um, you know, uh, uh, people that, that disliked uh, Muslims and, and, and whatever, uh, back in, in the 9-11 days, I, I was hearing even at work among people I thought were sensitive and intelligent, you know, they were saying things like, we should go over there and just blow them all up, you know? And, and so you have this, <laughs> this kind of instinct in human beings that, that you can take care of things by killing the cult leader, you know, or by blowing up another nation. Uh, it's, it, it's an awful part of us, uh, but it's there. And, um, you know, and we all have to own it to some degree, I think. Just picking up on, on what Joe was talking about, uh, as far as the alleged racist bent of theosophy in the IM, I'd just like to back up a little tiny bit. So it's absolutely true what Joe was saying, that Blavatsky was influenced by Edward Bulwer-Lytton and his novels. And he wrote a, a novel called The Coming Race. That's right. what it's called, The Coming Race. And um, it suggests that there were these sort of what you might call sort of like lesser evolved races that lived in different caverns or caves. And that this coming race was a group of people who were, as Joe said, modeled off of Rosicrucians who, you know, Rosicrucians started out as a fictional society um, in 16th century Europe that was really supposed to be modeling how, how there could be good government and, and, you know, speculating that there could be. And it was really came out of the Protestant movement that wanted to oppose the divine right of kings. And upon Rosicrucianism, you had built Freemasonry, which is kind of a real society. And Freemasonry has its political side and it's got its esoteric mystical side. Um, so the whole idea of there being these underground civilizations, I think Joe's correctly bringing out in theosophy. But if you look at theosophy and politics and authoritarianism, you can see that it can be brought in different ways. And it was actually used and became the basis of, of the nation of India gaining its independence. Annie Besant was a theosophist and she supported Indian independence. The, the theosophists actually opposed the you know, settler colonialism of, of um, Great Britain and imperialism. So you had some theosophists who actually went on to influence um, the IM, but that were really liberal. And I want to bring out as an example, um, Frederick Oliver and the Dweller on Two Planets by Philos the Tibetan. Um, that's a novel that influenced the IM and it predicts an apocalypse in the United States. And Almost no one has noticed that the reason for this apocalypse is if we don't have a workers' movement and social justice. So basically, Frederick Oliver was sort of almost a communist in a sense, and this, and he was writing at the you know the end of the 19th, early 20th century. So he has this. He brings in all these themes from Theosophy. He creates this sort of prophecy that there's going to be a bloodbath in America if if there isn't justice, basically through the workers' movement. And so then the IM folks take up that view and turn it into, um, they were very opposed to labor movement, okay? And they definitely were what I would say right wing, but they were also patriots, they were not Nazis. And just because they had some association or some members that came in through Pelly and the Silver Shirts doesn't mean that they necessarily were promoting and supporting fascism. In fact, Mrs. Ballard, who was one of the founders of 
of the IM along with Guy who died. Um, Mrs. Ballard led prayer sessions against the Nazis during World War II. And so I think you have to look at this with some nuance and a number of the things that Joe said have been repeated endlessly in newspaper articles and probably in exit counseling deprogramming. So I think it's important to address them. And one of them would be this whole idea that the masters were just waiting to shake the government upside down and turn it inside out and put the Christed ones in positions of power. That is based on a quote from a dictation, which is a channeled message that our mother gave during the Watergate hearings. Okay, so this was a time when everybody in the country was pretty upset and disgusted with corruption. Mm -hmm. And so the notion that, you know, perhaps there was going to be some political takeover by, you know, our group, um, I think is has been overblown through the years. Um, and you can address that in the future. Um, but I just wanted to mention that, that I think that that quote has really been taken out of context and used wrongly. Certainly our group and my mother did support conservative causes and there's no question about that. And hopefully, you know, Christoph could talk about that a little bit. You know, I changed my political views significantly since growing up in the church. And there's no question that it was sort of a, you know, right leaning group, but there, were aspects of it that also included liberal positions. And I don't want to leave that out. And I also don't want to leave out the fact that in general and nominally, and you can, you know, talk about this a little bit more, our parents did promote the idea and so did theosophy of universal brotherhood, of unity of races, and they had significant followings in yeah. Africa, the Caribbean, et cetera. I, I would say that, you know, none of this is black and white. And I, I would, um, We've talked about this on the show quite a bit before, just about the theocratic impulse in general. And, you know, certainly, you know, that that makes sense that the that that wording came out of a, an era of corruption like Watergate. And at the same time, I think we both know that our parents wanted God government. We They wanted they wanted to see the principles of divine law. It kind of enshrined into the law of the land, if in so much as was possible. I mean, there was, I believe there was a time, I don't remember which president, maybe you do, Aaron, but when there was a dictation given and she said something along the lines of the mantle of the great white brotherhood does not fall on this president. Do you remember which president that was? Yeah, it was, it was George Herbert Walker Bush. It was right after Reagan. So she did not, she thought that he was sort of representative of the sort of new globalism. She didn't mm -hmm. see him as beings of patriot that she thought Ronald Reagan was. So, so yeah, that, that was kind of interesting. There's no question that there was that political undertone. And she always felt that, you know, the masters were meant to be sort of like Merlin with King Arthur. And obviously the Bible is just filled with references to God anointing kings, you know, and, um, you know, I think, again, this was a tension. There was a tension within the teachings between individual choice and some kind of divine plan. Yeah. And also, I, you know, I do I do want to acknowledge what you're saying. There was there were there were many areas in which I think our mother was an iconoclast against, you know, conservative theology, particularly when she gave the teach the lectures on the lost teachings of Jesus on women's rights, for example. And there were other ways in which herself as a 
you know, the female vicar of Christ as a bishop of the church, all of these things like that. I mean, she was definitely breaking the mold. And we talked about on our last show, Joe, with uh, the, Amy Semple McPherson. She was in that mold of right. of breaking down the sort of sexist uh, bastions of of religion. So I don't want to deny or discount that, but I also want to say that if you if you look at the sort of tone for example, of the IM movement, and you say, well, they're not Nazis. No, of course they weren't. And of course they didn't want the, the Nazis to win in, in World War II. But there, there is a similarity between the idea of the master race on the one hand, right? In terms of if you're, if you're talking about white people or Aryans or whatever it is, versus the, the ascended masters who are perfected beings, right? I mean, there, there, there has to be some acknowledgement of the fact that the even if you're talking about in different nations, the ideas about purity and the ideas about authority, the ideas about transcendence and and even getting away from the body as a, as the, you know, the, the anchor of uh, of who we are. You know, th those things isn't don't you feel, Aaron, that there's some connection there? Um, so, I mean, I'd be happy to address the whole idea of salvation within theosophy, and I'm sure that Joe has some ideas about that as well. Um, but I think that the whole idea of the blonde, blue-eyed, ascended masters, um, is definitely was there, but it came from the I am. It really wasn't there in Blavatsky. And um, I think that the guy and Edna Ballard had their own idiosyncrasies. There were also some esoteric teachings around the idea that people from Venus had blonde hair. And, you know, so there's no question that theosophy has to struggle with these difficult uh, traditions that have come out of, you know, it's a vast movement. There is, as I said, hundreds of groups. And so these mythologies got kind of built up at different times. Yeah, Aaron, uh, could I add something here? Yeah, it, it isn't theosophy so much that, that encouraged the the I am and that extreme right wing. But but if you look at a spinoff of theosophy called Ariosophy, which had some influence on the early Nazi movement, some of their figures, and that infiltrated into the, the German uh, uh, zeitgeist, so to speak, I, I think that's where you have to look is Ariosophy. It's a specific version of theosophy. Anyway, I don't want to get too esoteric. Maybe we should hear what Christoph have to say here. Yeah, well, I was going to ask. Uh, I was going to ask you, Christoph. Like, since we're talking about all this whiteness and all of this, <laughs> all these Aryan masters, uh, how was this experience for you growing up in this organization? Yeah, I mean, um, thanks for asking that question. Uh, and this has been fascinating, uh, very illuminating, frankly. But. Um, you know, it's it's I, I say a lot on the show is that my experience as an African-American is a bit different than your average African-Americans, not only because I spent time in uh, the like the whitest state in the entire country. Right. Montana and, and that area. But um, which is, you know, like one of the 15 black people that have ever been to Montana. Right. <laughs> um, and then, you know, so there's that. And that's a very sort of unique experience. But also, you know, I my parents, my dad's an immigrant. Right. He's like he's a first generation immigrant. I did. You know, my mom's side of the family is from the United States. But, um, you know, but uh, but again, I to put it in the most frankest terms, I am relatively privileged at, for, for an at, for at, in the African American community in general. Um, so my experience is my experience is a bit is is strange in that way. But you know, I and my parents didn't bring my parents in an effort to make sure that I wasn't um, well, an effort to uh, to 
to elevate us, me and the rest of my siblings to, um, uh, to into like a powerful class, right. To not be to, to what we, we didn't do black stuff. Right. So we like, we didn't, we like my experience was very like white suburban kid. Like that really was my experience before Montana. And then there was Montana. Um, and, so the 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 lack of diversities in the um, in the in in the pantheon of masters was not was just a, was 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 a was a shoulder shrug for me right like it like it didn't even occur to me my parents wouldn't even have pointed that out because that's just not how I was brought up so it wasn't until actually quite much later in retrospect when I was like holy shit there's no what there's no black masters and then there's one token one right <laughs> and then and that they that, that came up later on. Right. Like, you know, and um, and and then it was only very recently, actually, uh, you know, in the last, say, 10 years or so, my awakening as a black person has has really like taken off. Right. And so and then I look back in retrospect on these things and we were out and they, we have this Facebook group for the cut kids. Right. And someone brought up the um, brought up the offer thing. And I, and I really was like suddenly very upset by it. I was like, wow. What a slap in the face. So you're saying that like no one else, this is the first black person ever to become a master. And it just happened. Right. And it also happened to coincide with this huge push to get Africans, black Africans into the church. Wow. And so, um, so, you know, I try to look at this in the context of the time, right. I'm talking, we're talking about two people who your, your parents who were um, of their era, Right. They were and we're talk, trying to and we're trying to think about this again in the context. Right. And they were of their era. They uh, in that era, black people were not seen really. Right. Like that wasn't like putting black people in the front was not something that was on people's minds. And they were trying to bring an or build an organization based on the and it was based on the environment in which they lived. Right. And so it's not surprising in retrospect, um, but it is. Awakening. If there's anything that I need to look back and say, holy shit, this was really a man-made phenomenon, right? Like, it, like this was obviously the brainchild of two people, very deeply flawed people. Like everyone is flawed, right? Deeply flawed people, also extremely charismatic people. Um, and um, and so it's not surprising in retrospect. So I guess the big roundabout answer is that at the time, I don't think I. It took me a long time to realize how fucked up I thought it was that I think it is now. Right. It really, really did. And, um, you know, just and I say this a lot is white supremacy influences everything. It's 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 woven into the fabric of every element of our society. And there's no person, no aspect, no. And I'm talking about worldwide, right, worldwide, where lighter is always better. And um, and uh, and that is. And so this is just another instance of that, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, that's good. To, that's good to hear, Christoph, about your experiences. And I'm sure, again, we could do probably even more about that. But <laughs> I want to I want to take up since we probably only have about another 20 minutes or so, maybe 30. Um, who wants to go and talk about Blavatsky and her ideas about race and how that, you know, how those came into the church? Joe? All right. Well, I'll, I'll be brief because I know Aaron has a lot on this. In fact, I read her dissertation about the evolution of, uh, I forget now the title, but anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, my take on Blavatsky is that she uh, was trying to rescue the art culture in, in a way. And, and, and even in her words, she said that she didn't find anything new. She was just the, 
the thread, the, the string that, that, that tied the pearls together, the pearls of wisdom. And so she tried to bring Rosicrucian lore, the ancient uh, Egyptian mysteries, and then later she got into um, Eastern religion, you know, um, later in her career before she wrote The Secret Doctrine. And, and her idea was uh, to go against science, what she called the strutting gamecock of science. And, and you know, she even had a, a stuffed baboon that was dressed like uh, Darwin in, in one of her uh, ateliers in New York. Uh, holding uh, the the origin of species in its hand. Um, so so I think what she was trying to do in her own way and was kind of creative was sort of uh, rework evolution in an esoteric sense, where the human being devolved from a, a higher etheric kind of a creature, um, uh, an angelic form, and then came into material life um, in, in a way. And and now we're going back into other rounds or other races. Um, Alice Bailey took this up later in, in, in a different way, and, and the I Am did in a more crude way, the I Am movement. But the idea was that, that we were evolving into a higher species, a more etheric species now, and the theosophy was on the cutting edge of letting us know uh, the I Am was saying the same thing. If I remember an old I Am woman telling me when I was learning about the religion in Santa Fe that eventually the human being will not have red blood, we will have amber blood you know, in our system, because red is such a low energy uh, color, you know, and, and anyway, I, I don't want to get into all that right now. But uh, so so the idea was a spiritual evolution. And, and it was kind of interesting. And you find new agers picking up on that without even knowing it, that we are, you know, have the indigo children coming into in, into birth, and there's special people that are part of the coming race. Um, you, you have uh, the idea that in our lifetime, it's always in our lifetime, a new age is dawning. And, you know, we're going to bring it about. And, and uh, you know, so our children become better children and there will be a better world and, and there will be renewal of what Mircea Eliade called renovatio, that this was a common theme in the 60s. You know, I was a, back in the hippie days of the 60s. We were looking for the new age. You know, we wanted to purge ourselves of the old ways by taking LSD and whatever, you know, to, to kind of come back to the essential Edenic self. And, and you still have that going on. I see a whole rise in, in you know, mushrooms and, and LSD and, and DMT and other things going on with uh, patients brought into our hospital. Again, you know, more of that going on than there was 10 years ago. So, uh, yeah, having said that, you know, and I think maybe Aaron could uh, elaborate on it, but Blavatsky was really trying to redefine um, the whole idea of evolution in spiritual terms and, and went against Darwin, kind of like flipping it on his head. But yeah, go ahead, Aaron. Sure. <laughs> so um, I think there's been a fundamental misconstrual of what theosophy was all about. And I know that Joe's studied and read a lot about this. And um, so Blavatsky actually considered herself on the side of science. Um, and she supported the idea of human evolution from animals. And as Joe mentioned, she was trying to sort of synthesize. Now, the baboon that she had in her in her study was actually not Darwin. It was John Fisk. Oh, OK. Fisk was one of the foremost promoters of Darwin in um, in 19th century America. And he was a scientist. But he also promoted ideas about what you might call spiritual materialism, kind of like an ethereal matter, forms of matter that were would be considered like sort of probably by you, Sean, at least as like la la land, you know, 
science mysticism or something today. So science in Blavatsky's time was not science that we consider today. I mean, you had Oliver Lodge, who was famous scientist, um, promoting the idea that there was some kind of ether, some kind of, you know, very fine form of matter around uh, that we just couldn't see, but it was still matter. So the book that um, I think Joe's referring to is called by Peter Washington called Madame Blavatsky's Baboon and basically presents this kind of black and white thing that Blavatsky's in favor of religion and opposing Darwin who's science. So Peter Washington actually was pretty sloppy and he didn't really read John Fisk and I did. So I talk about it and I'm going to be, you know, writing more about that in the future. But I think that Joe is absolutely right that she was looking for a new way to think about you know, what humans need to do in order to become transformed in some way. And the Christian world obviously would be going to heaven, right? And so she came up with this idea of called root race theory, which you've talked about on the show a little bit, and it sounds really bad. <laughs> you know, root race theory sounds like scientific racism, and it certainly drew upon some of the ideas that were common in her day, but it held that sort of everyone the root races were actually sort of not races as we know them. Like they weren't colored. Uh, they weren't based on people's color. The first root race was these ethereal kind of gas-like beings. The second root race was supposed to be giants. Um, the third root race was supposed to be giant ape-like figures. And the fourth root race was um, basically started to begin of animals and humans breeding. And the fifth root race is modern humans. And so all the races that we consider on earth were part of the fifth root race and supposed to be sub races. So this sounds really awful. I understand. <laughs> and she did have these sort of sub races within the fifth root race that were supposed to be um, related to races and she talked about the Aryan race. We know that the Aryan race was supposed to include Indians and it was a idea that came out of linguistics and then got taken up later by the Gnostics. If anybody really wants to understand this, I suggest that you look at Nicholas Goodrich Clark's book called um, Black Sun, which goes into the whole, you know, Hitler connection. Obviously there were people who took it in different directions, but I will just say that um, so there certainly was the idea that perhaps indigenous people, and Blavatsky mentions Australians, for example, as well as certain tribes of Africans as being part of leftovers from the fourth root race and being more spiritual, but less rational. So there's definitely some scientific racism there in root race theory. I want to but, interject something real quick, yeah. if I could. And that is that we Hi. actually talked about this um, on our show. We've had a series on the goodness paradox, which is a, which is a book about human domestication. And I think that we have to recognize that at the time this was all going on, it was still very colonialism was in very much in swing, full swing. And there was also this idea that savages might be a different species to civilized humans. And there's, there's just been a lot of that. And so I, I don't know if that had, and if, if, if you are aware of any of that had to do with Blavatsky's ideas, but somehow, and, and, and please continue on the, on the root races, but somehow it seemed at that point that, that there was very, very much of a, of a, of a scientific racist bent um, that was much stronger than it is now because we didn't understand that 
we didn't understand what actually defined what, you know, what was homo sapiens. Well, there certainly still were people who are arguing that, that not all human beings were in the same species. Darwin was not one of them. Thomas Henry Huxley, who was one of the big promoters of Darwin's theory across the world, promoted a horrible idea that there was a progression of the races from the Australians, and you could draw it with a line on the globe from Australia up to England, and the jaw angle supposedly of Australians was more pronounced than the jaw angle of the Europeans, which was supposedly straight up and down. So that's just horrible racism, right? That's just horrible. And um, But yet nobody is talking about what a horrible guy T.H. Huxley was, right? Because he's a hero in our story. He's the one that promoted Darwin. So I think it's just important not to judge Blavatsky too harshly. I think that she actually spoke up in favor of as mentioned, uh, Indians, and she challenged the British use of um, the N-word to describe both Egyptians as well as Indians and Africans. So she was, you know, problematic figure. And these ideas, you know, continued on to the 20th century with the idea that there were certain racial characteristics that might go along with um someone being more evolved or more advanced. But the crucial difference, I think, between Blavatsky and, say, some Christian denominations is that she actually thought that you would go through each one of the sub-races until you got to the highest. And so when I think I want to just talk about what Christoph is saying about Afra being this token ascended master, and it actually, I think my father did say something about how he had worked really hard, you know, and he sort of overcame his karma or something. I think that people forget um, different movements. They don't even always necessarily read all this stuff. My parents were certainly not experts on theosophy. They got a lot of their ideas from IM. So many of their earliest students were black. Um, our father's first congregation, I think had you know three blacks and two whites in it or something. And certainly there were a lot of blacks who came to the movement and did not necessarily feel marginalized um, I can remember having mixed services, and I do know that the IM, and I've gotten different ideas from different people who were in the IM. Some of them said there were separate congregations, and some of them have said that, you know, they weren't. But let's look at the Mormons, right? The Mormons didn't even allow Blacks to, to be in their, you know, priesthood until very recently. And how many African saints are in the Catholic Church? So, I mean, I think that a lot of this has to do with who was in the group and who was it portraying itself too. And, you know, to my parents' credit, they, you know, did have pretty large followings in Ghana, Liberia, and among even the government officials in Ghana and Liberia. And so, yeah, it might seem pretty opportunistic. They suddenly announce a, an African uh, ascended master. And, you know, I realized that that's definitely problematic. I think you can look at this across the board, okay? And I think what it what it says is it reinforces the idea that religion is really a human cultural phenomenon, and it re it's going to reflect your beliefs about race are going to reflect the general beliefs about race. Because the fact that that Summit Lighthouse Church Universal and Triumphant was not alone in terms of you know look when when you look at the Mormons, when you look at like you said Catholic saints, when you look at uh, at the IM, and and you see that this was just a reflection of the way society was, and we hadn't, you know, when when the when the 
Summit Lighthouse started, the Civil Rights Act hadn't been passed. The you know schools hadn't been integrated yet, or they were just in the process of being integrated and things like that. So I, I really feel like, I mean, do you, do you agree with that, Erin? Um, yeah, there's no question that religions reflect their culture and vice versa, that there's an interaction. And there's one point that I forgot to mention, which is that um, my I've written a chapter on um, race and theosophy that's going to be published in an up forthcoming volume that was presented at Harvard Divinity School at a, a symposium they had reassessing theosophy. And one of my colleagues is actually studying a guy named Robert T. Brown, who lived between 1882 and 1978, who was black and who invented something called Afro-theosophy. I'm uh, sorry, Afro-theophysics. And Afro-theosophysics, okay, sorry. My, my colleague, Stephen Finley, is publishing a chapter about this, and I would be happy to share my chapter as well as, as his. It should be coming out this year. But it just goes to show how, in my view, these ideas are malleable. They can be taken in empowering directions. So this Afro-theosophysics was supposed to be all about quantum physics, and it was actually appealed to some of the um, important figures in African-American culture, that is what uh, Stephen Finley goes into in his chapter. And so even though nominally these ideas can be interpreted in a racist direction, they could also be interpreted in an empowering direction by some Blacks. And in fact, the president of the Theosophical Society today is Black, which is kind of interesting. That is interesting. If I, if I could just jump in here, I just want to comment, and, and I, I certainly don't claim to be, I'm, I'm very, by the way, grateful for to hear you, you, you guys are experts on this, and I think it's really interesting. Um, what I did want to mention, though, is I, I bristle against the idea that the fact that there was a black congregation, you know, in the beginning, or that there were black people in the church, or that people in Ghana were involved, as if that is some sort of like say, oh no, it wasn't so bad. I think that's bullshit, actually. I mean, and again, I'm not talking from the perspective of an expert here. I'm speaking from the perspective of a black person who spent in a lot of time around white people. And so I did not walk around in my youth or I spent my entire growing up, my entire, you know, education around mostly white people. And rarely did I have somebody say, oh, you're not good enough because you're black or you don't belong here. Because I mean, that that's people aren't outright racist like that. Right. But really what we're talking about here is the denial of the like of, of the denial of just being like, oh, yeah, you're just one of us as if that is just papers over. Right. All of the intergenerational trauma, it ignores my experience as unique as a black person. Right. And, 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 and I think that's really, really important. Right. Because just be, because this is this is something that like conservatives do this all the time, which is like, we're not racist. What are you talking about? We have a black person here. And it's not even the tokenism is a tokenism. Mm-hmm. Fine. But it's beyond that. It's like, no, as long as he agrees and doesn't ever mention the fact that he's black, uh-huh. everything's fine. Right. Right. Like and that was my entire experience growing up. You are one of us as long as you never, ever make us feel uncomfortable about the fact that you're black. Right. Right. And and that is important to distinguish here, because, yes, your parents definitely had black my dad. But my dad is the quintessential guy to never bring up the fact that he's black. He is the perfect lap black lap dog. Right. And 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 and. And I think that's an important thing to interject here. And that's not to take away from the fact that, yeah, they like it was a big deal to not be outright racist in 1955 or 1958 or 1963 when this was starting out. Definitely. That is a big deal to be like, yeah, we have black people in our congregation. 
But that's not the same thing as saying, yes, this was an inclusive environment. Like those are two very different things, two very different things. Could I, could I add just something here? It just came to mind. We all know back in the day, Australia was called the white man's continent. Um, and, and they wanted to keep it that way uh, until recent times, since the 60s again. Um, I just recently read this book, came out in 2019, Dark Emu, and by Bruce Pascoe, who's part uh, Aboriginal. Um, he's a, a, a great writer, but in here, he the subtitle is Aboriginal Australia and the Birth of Agriculture. Um, the thesis here is that the early colonists felt that they could take over the land there because these people weren't really managing it. They were just hunter gatherers. They didn't own it, so to speak. So anybody could take it over and own it. He shows extensive evidence here that, that the aboriginals were um, cultured farmers and did have a, a culture and uh, it did kind of manage the land. They didn't have a sense of ownership the way that we might in terms of our our private property rights, you know, in, in America and other nations today. But but this book is an excellent corrective on that idea that somehow the aboriginals were lesser humans and, and not quite as intelligent as the people coming in. Uh, so I'd recommend Dark Emu if you want to look at what's happening in Australia right now and, and that whole corrective on, on the idea of race. That sounds really good. And uh, I also want to say the same thing about the U.S. We discussed briefly in one of our episodes recently about how good the stewardship was of the land by Native Americans. And mm. and the proposal was to, you know, to give the national parks back to the Native Americans and allow them to, 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 to retake them over. And I think... The difference being in this land management is that we we put up fences, we put up boundaries, whereas the 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 aboriginals and then and the indigenous people in in the Americas managed whole ecosystems. They they had to range, they had to move, they they went where the animals went, they went they they did forest management, they did, you know like all kinds of stuff that we just didn't understand because we were coming at it from this European private property, you know, feudalism, fenced, you know, uh, uh, perspective. Yeah, but, plus plus it was manifest destiny, white privilege, all of that was was a big part of the movement back then. Yeah, well, I, and I want to bring this full circle, though, because we're, we've kind of been discussing about the ideological origins of these groups and, and you know, it, specifically the Summit Lighthouse. And I came across an announcement from the Summit Lighthouse uh, for their July conference that would have been held just a week or two ago, and that is that is something that was I found I found to be very disturbing because I believe that they had a guest speaker named Dr. James Lindsay at their conference, and this person I don't believe that our parents would have supported this person being there. And I do believe that the organization has now been kind of taken over by uh, Trump supporters and or that the organization itself have become Trump supporters. I don't know. And, and this sort of orientation of anti-wokeism and cultural Marxism, right? This is the new agenda of the Republican Party. This is what they're using to, to, to win elections now. And this, the idea of opposing the teaching of critical race theory, and which is really just talking about American history, what actually happened. And so I, I want, I don't know, Joe or Aaron, if you, either one of you want to take this and, and just kind of address where you think this organization is going and why they would be going that way. Have they just, are they just 
succumbing to kind of current political trends or is this ideologically consistent in some way for this organization? Um, what do you think is going on here? Um, Aaron, do you want to go ahead? Go sure, ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll just jump in. First of all, I'm, I'm not an expert on where the church is politically currently. I mean, I do know some people and I do have some friends who are still in it. And I would say that, you know, I think that it's important, again, to not overgeneralize. I don't know anything about James Lindsay, but I do think that um, it's unfortunate. It's really tragic and horrible that this discourse around critical race theory is being used um, to divide people because it's just such it's a time when we need to be coming to terms with and accounting for, you know, our past and being honest about it. And I do believe that my parents would have been open to that. Um, unfortunately, you have these, you know, um, 24-hour, you know, and you can see uh, people who worked for Fox News before have, have said, you know, it was our job to find things that we could, you know, use to heighten the emotional content. And unfortunately, people have been, in a sense, captured by this. But I do know that there are people with different views on things like vaccines, on the um, the virus, and there are people who are still there because they like the spiritual teachings. And unfortunately, the right-wing politics is also there. And, uh, you know, I don't really have a, like a solution for it. Um, I'm really sorry, Christoph, that, you know, you had to go through what you did growing up. And, you know, I'm glad that you've, you are reassessing and looking at it. And, you know, I think that ultimately the problems around religion, they don't end. And, you know, what, what, what is the problem is when people try to say, oh, well, this person's word is the last word. And unfortunately, I feel like that kind of happened with our parents in some way. But again, I, you know, my mother, <laughs> you know, she's, she didn't like George Herbert Walker Bush. So she, I mean, she was not necessarily a diet in the wool Republican. I'd like to think that I don't think she would have supported Donald Trump. She would have hated um, Trump. She would have hated yeah. Trump. As she thought he was, would have thought he was vulgar. She thought he was uneducated. I mean, she was well educated in political science and and just would have been disgusted. I'm I'm certain of it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I hope that the people who are still in the church will find their way around these, you know, some of these more divisive and ridiculous things. And now, you know, Mom didn't support Freeman. She didn't support people who were part of this, you know. Um, what is it? This like, oh, we're going to separate ourselves out. We don't acknowledge sovereign citizens. Yeah, I mean, she pretty much said, and that's you know part of why our group didn't get into necessarily a Waco or Ruby Ridge because we believed fundamentally that you know we supported the government and we were going to comply with the laws as you know as much as we felt we could. So, you know, um, that's my take on it. Do you want to say something? Yeah, I uh, just one. Point. Um, I just heard a, a, a talk about a new book on NPR, and I can't remember the author, but they've been done a lot of studies on the shrinking uh, white uh, uh, evangelical base. Yeah. You know, which so, so there's kind of a, a white fright going on in, in in the United States and in other nations, and uh, you know the browning of the world, so to speak. Um, and and so you find uh, people that that identify with themselves as being at the pinnacle of society suddenly shrinking. Uh, there's an anxiety and angst among them, and and people that have anxiety will 
succumb to what, again, Beyond calls this, this uh, basic assumption state and begin to marshal their forces in order to protect their identity and do it, and they do it irrationally is the problem. They're not working the system anymore. So a lot of them are aging out. That demographic is 60 and older. Uh, and you find uh, most of the people that watch, Fox, that watch Fox News are of that demographic. Uh, so, you know, who knows in 10, 15 years where all that's going to go. It might age out like a paradigm shift of some kind. We don't know, but hopefully it works out for the best. Boy, let's hope so. Well, I think we have to wrap it up. Um, I think that we have covered a lot of ground. I want to give each of you the opportunity to say to uh, say any final thoughts about the the you know the the intersection between spirituality and and these political things that we've been talking about. Well, I'll, I'll just say that I'll I'll never wear this shirt again. This is the last time you're going to see it on me. <laughs> it's, it's a relic. <laughs> I think it was put to good use. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I think that even people who are in the so-called anti-cult movement have evolved and changed their views quite a bit over the past 50 years. And I think my hope is to promote tolerance and understanding. And that's why I, you know, continue my my public work and public writing is because I would hope that the future people in the future could benefit from our experiences and try to continue making better world. I hope so too. Well, Joe Zimhart, Aaron Prophet, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciated your time and insight and perspective. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Christoph. Well, I really enjoyed that guest segment. I, this is kind of one of those ones where I really, I, I think we could have gone a lot longer. I think we barely <laughs> scratched the surface there. What did you think? Absolutely. It was, uh, there was, I think it was multi-layered. It was really great to talk to Aaron. Um, as I mentioned when we were chatting um, earlier, you know, Aaron is someone that I knew from the church, someone that was sort of, you know, uh, you know, a, a leader, et cetera. And it was, it's, and I spoke to her a couple of times, but it was really nice to, to sort of talk to her and speak to her as an individual, as a person, uh, and as also an expert, expert. And I love the interplay between Joe and Aaron, and there are different ways of thinking about, about the same issues and talking about the same issues. And, um, and I think it was just a really illuminating and useful conversation. I think for me, it was also, it, you know, there's, there's just a, there's a, there's a height of irony here because, Aaron and I seemingly in our journey out of the church went different in different directions. I went right into atheism and I went right into, you know, black, black sun journal mm -hmm. denouncing the organization. Like here's the, here's all these ideas that are wrong. Here's, you know, here's these things that happen. Here's these scandals. Here's this corruption. And Aaron goes and gets a PhD in religion. Right. Mm. And, and same thing with Joe Zimhart. We were all, you know, like kind of polar opposites, right? Mm. In, this, in this whole thing. And now we're all sitting down as a group kind of in a more mature setting, kind of reflecting back on this, on this past set of events here. And um, I just, I found it really gratifying personally. Yeah, I believe that it is, it's, I mean, I am obviously not related to the two of you, but the, but we have similar experiences and I can really, you know, one of the things that I, and we talked about this briefly earlier as well. And this, 
the perspective that I think that we all bring to it now is one of maturity, like you just said, right? It's less of just like raging and gnashing of teeth or like, you know, uh, or, or, or even pointing fingers at each other and saying, oh, right, like you did it that way, you did it that way. But being like, hey, look, here we are talking about this as adults with the, uh, with the benefit of time and reflection and personal growth. And uh, I think that is a really, that's a really useful conversation. And frankly, it was really nice to see you and your sister just like talking and, 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 and jiving. I think that that was nice for me to see as well. Well, cool. Um, any other final thoughts that you might have? I think that is about it. <laughs> okay. Well, everybody, remember, if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Sean Prophet. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. The Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, and Joe Okipinti. Logo and main title designed by Tim Stetner. Post-production and original theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti. Okay.